0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Most of us are trying to clean up a bit for January or stick to new habits. A growing epidemic in our society is chronic stress and obesity, which is why I've asked our previous guest Matt Lovell to share some achievable tips with us to adapt into our lives. Matt is an expert in corporate wellness. He is a performance and health nutritionist, and he develops top health and nutrition products via his site, aminoman.com. His clients have included England Rugby, Man City, and currently Reading and Bournemouth football clubs. Welcome to the show, Matt Lovell.
0: Hi, Aiden. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me back on.
1: It's great to have you back on. I've been following your blog very closely over the last while, particularly after Christmas. It's this time of year where people have new habits. They're trying to introduce brand new habits or take up old ones that they used to have and change their dietary regimes. And you remind us in one of your recent blogs that there's a saying, the brain always wins. And I thought we might start with that.
0: Yes, an interesting one, this, because essentially our behavior is reinforced by what the brain will perceive as a reward-based activities. Most of us will be geared towards being more pleasure-seeking rather than pain-seeking. It sort of sounds obvious, but Activities which associate with more pleasurable outcomes tend to also be the ones that can sometimes lead you to not as good levels of body composition and maybe not as effective workouts and things like that, unless you're, of course, you're already used to them. So if you have large servings of carbohydrates, then you'll dump a load of sort of serotonin and feel-good, fed-based hormones into the system if you fast for a while your brain will start to release quite a lot of stress hormones and other things which would in turn enable you to go out and you know gather some food and get some calories into the bank so we're sort of always trying to slightly outsmart these primitive desires in order to maintain you know maintain health and maintain a good body composition what can be at first a relatively different and new experience, say that that if you're new to exercise, everything aches for a few days. And then after a while, if you don't exercise, you don't feel right for the rest of the day. And of course, we do get pleasure-based chemicals, endorphins, uh, released in large amounts when we exercise at sufficiently high intensity. So my angle for many clients is to make habit changes and things like that easier. On the brain is to give the brain what it needs in terms of stabilizing things at first before you begin to induce any type of withdrawal. An easy place to start would be with the basics, which would be, you know, keep hydrated and try and stabilize your blood sugar. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to come off sugar quickly or come off something else that they might crave, like alcohol in the evenings. If you try and do that type of thing in a in a low blood sugar environment, it's much, much more difficult than if you've got you know stable blood sugar.
1: Take that one because this is a very, very common one. and personally, I find even though I don't probably have a low sugar environment, I have cravings in the evening, and this is not nothing to do with Christmas or the the splurge that we have in certain occasions. But on an ongoing basis, I have that kind of craving in the evenings. And I do notice certain foods give you more of that craving, etc. It'd be great to get a little eye-opener on what's going on there.
0: Well, people think that the sugar craving at night might be a survival-based mechanism to encourage greater consumption at calories at night. That's one theory. Our insulin handling ability is thought to be less sufficient at night, so we are less able to process and handle sugars in a good way, so more likely to store them as fat. Again, that's thought to be for survival as well, so that, you know, you store a bit of fat, so you've got a bit of survival energy just in case of the sort of feast-famine effect. The other thing that can trigger a craving is if you have a large serving of carbohydrates or just a, a large meal, and then you get the sort of rebound hyperglycemia. so you get a you get a peak in sugars, and then you get a rapid reduction in sugar as the body releases lots of insulin in response to a large carbohydrate meal. And the final reason that some people think you get the cravings is if you if you've overconsumed energy, then the process of converting that energy across requires more energy, so that then suddenly you think, oh no, I need some sugar at this end of this meal. When of course, you know, eating sugar at the end of the meal is probably the last thing you need because you might have already consumed, you know, fifteen hundred calories from various sources. One of the best ways to get through all that sort of all those sort of systems and overcome all those possible theories around the higher carbohydrate craving at night is to eat in a sequence. So you emphasize the very nutrient dense but energy sparse foods, so vegetables, etc. You begin feeding on, say, raw vegetables like chopped up carrots, peppers, etc. Then, actually, the first main thing that you eat in your meal would be your protein source, a good double serving of protein. Then you might move on to cooked vegetables. Again, all these things would be increasing both the fiber and the protein content of the meal are the two things which are going to make you feel most satisfied and full. And then finally, thinking about what type of starch you might or might not have cooked. So sometimes it's maybe a good idea to shift away from starches at night if you're seeking to chop down your body fats by a couple of percent in January. But equally, if you've been to the gym after work, then there's going to be room to include some healthy sources of starches like sweet potatoes or brown rice or something like that. If you feel more thirsty than hungry, then that's sometimes thought to be a, a sign that you should actually stop eating.
1: One of the biggest challenges I find back when we first met, you were introducing a lot of new knowledge, but YouTube didn't exist. There wasn't as much proliferation of content and information on, on the internet. So you couldn't find very much stuff. Now the opposite is true. There's so many theories and myths, et cetera, And one of them is, oh, you shouldn't drink for such a period of time after you eat because it dilutes your digestive enzymes. What's what's your take on that one?
0: You know, a lot of people do suffer from poor digestion. Obviously, if you drink a lot of fluid, you will dilute your stomach acid. However, we do digest in a fluid environment. So generally speaking, I don't encourage people to drink too much water during the meal. I'd rather they had a good sort of hydration a couple of hours before and then probably not drinking too much water an hour before. But if you had a cup of water with your food, I don't think there's any problem with that the digestive system gets less efficient as we get older. So for an older person, then there may be a case for using digestive enzymes or even hydrochloric acid supplements. A lot of people, the the main reason they don't digest properly is they just eat too fast. They're not chewing their food sufficiently or taking enough time over their meals.
1: Particularly in the West, we do that quite a bit. We scoff down our food. It's not an event in itself. It's usually consumed during watching TV or during in another event or sitting at the desk and work.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that the mindful eating or whatever you, whatever you want to call it, you know, there's there's an increasing body of research saying actually just chewing your food has a favor, favorable effect on maintaining a normal weight. There's all kinds of associated benefits from eating in a in a family environment where people talk and converse. You probably assimilate more nutrients in a more efficient manner you feel full at the right time so rather than wolfing down 1500 calories before your hunger response has kicked in actually if you're eating slowly you might get to 750 7. and you're really actually very full depending on what you read it can take you know 15 to 20 minutes for that hunger response to kick in you could probably make your way through a whole Christmas dinner in that time and pudding <laughs> you weren't uh, if you weren't mindful eating while watching rerun of superman
1: (laughs) the christmas movies coming back to that one because i think that one's really interesting the hunger response kicking in another one i've read is having sugar before your meal actually numbs that hunger response or, or having certain foods before your meal or even in between meals can affect that hunger response for the negative
0: the main one there is the consumption of fructose so Fructose will not stabilize your hunger response at all. So you could, you could guzzle your way through f- fruit juice, sodas, things like that, and actually still feel very hungry. Having consumed an enormous amount of sugar in a, in a small can of pop, that's still one of the main ways I think that we overconsume calories is by drinking them. So that phrase, don't drink calories if you want to lose weight, I think is still quite pertinent, really. Mainly sugary drinks.
1: That one's something that you see quite a lot in the offices. People drinking diet coke and going, "Oh, it's a diet," so they don't really think there's any negative effect. But that's the one I always mention to people if they ask me: is the blocking effect of satiety. You don't know if you're full or not when you do drink these fizzy drinks, etc.
0: That's an interesting one because the I'm not a fan of diet drinks, but the the evidence does say that they don't actually make you make you fat. Like, you know, some people used to say, Oh, they're trig they'll still trigger some insulin response or something like that. But unfortunately the evidence doesn't support that. But what people th- what people think is they might maintain a sweet tooth. So whilst that might not affect your behavior the day after, you know, over the weeks and months, it may it may still keep you in that sweet zone where you might make a a choice for something very sugary, where you where you wouldn't have done before. The immediate short term effects don't seem to be supported around. Yeah, so diet drinks, even though they contain all the sweeteners and stuff, are probably a better choice than the than the full sugar ones if you're seeking to adjust your calorie balance and things like that.
1: This brings us nicely to maintaining the sweet tooth. Going back to the brain. And the fact that you don't just absolutely remove something, you replace it first to start with. And one of the things I've used is actually your blends of hot chocolate and you have this sugar killing tea in the evenings. That is just to ease out of Christmas because even I probably took two weeks off over Christmas from training, not fully training, but eating like, so the clean diet that I'd have, I took a little bit of time off, but even at that. I changed habits and I now need to come off slowly rather than going cold turkey. Excuse the pun over Christmas, but rather than going cold turkey, I need to ease off. And I found your hot chocolate and your teas really helpful. It'd be great to get a little idea of what's in those type of things because you talk about adaptogens quite a lot.
0: I'm also someone that, a bit like yourself, I don't like to suddenly go cold turkey, I'll I'll step down. Off maybe less healthy habits that I picked up over the Christmas break, step them down gradually and then get back into the way over seven to 10 days or something. The Gymnema Tea has got a long history of traditional use for stabilizing blood sugar. And what it appears to do clinically is alter and improve your insulin and sensitivity and sugar handling ability also slows the absorption somewhat of sugars into the bloodstream. So when you take it with a meal, it basically has a beneficial effect on stabilizing blood glucose. It also generally tastes slightly sweet. One of its nicknames is the sugar destroyer. It's a good tea to use if you're just seeking to just get away from the cravings a little bit and slow things down in terms of blood glucose response. The adaptogenic hot chocolate is... That is... A formula which is centered directly on pretty much giving the craving brain lots of nice feel-good chemicals so there's serotonin builders in there there's adaptogens that work on the GABA and serotonin pathways in the brain so they make you feel a bit more relaxed there's a whole B vitamin blend in there which helps with stress response there's magnesium and zinc with that one what I haven't done is put any sugar in it at all. There's no fillers or anything like that. There's also other things in there for stabilizing the blood sugar and adding some fiber. Inulin is one of my favorite ingredients, which is like a prebiotic fiber, which tastes slightly sweet. You know, that features in a f- in quite a few of the formulas, including the, the new greens and the amber aminos hot chocolate. That just makes you feel fuller. It makes you feel full. Yeah, so two grams of inulin given to children every day uh, was shown to improve their body composition. Literally, as as little as that, anything that helps you feel full should um, normalize somewhat your food choices, as long as your hunger response isn't completely out of whack. So if there were two secrets to maintaining a good body composition... It would be to eat sufficient fiber and sufficient protein. And, and that essentially is lots of vegetables and then uh, and then some good protein on top of it.
1: That's one that I find really interesting. When you visit many of the tech companies, a lot of the HQs of the tech companies are in Dublin and Ireland, and they have fridges full of food. It's full of diet sodas. But the foods in them are the opposite to what you say. Like I'm always struck by the fact that it's full of sugar-based foods that are Creating a problem for people, which brings me to the workplace. And you mentioned this crisis, this epidemic that's upon us. And I didn't know there was a term for it. You tell us in one of your recent posts, Cushing syndrome. I'd love if you shared a little bit about that because maybe we can spot it in people we know, family members, friends, loved ones, but also colleagues.
0: Cushing syndrome is quite an extreme situation, a situation that arises from prolonged exposure to high levels of cortisol. You don't tend to see it as much in younger people, but you do see it quite frequently in middle age, and certainly older people is something you can see quite frequently. It's typified by a a larger midsection. You can get a lot of fatty deposits around the abdomen, and the upper back can become quite fatty. You can get a puffy face sometimes called moon face, fluid retention. What you sometimes see is thin arms and thin legs, but a fat body. The skin can become thin and sometimes you see the little purple lines on the extremities, the sort of little purple veins just slightly under the skin. It can lead to gastric problems and can potentiate things like osteoporosis. Cortisol is brilliant for waking us up and giving us loads of energy but it's also a very powerful anti-inflammatory. So if you have too much for too long, It can cause those sort of withering symptoms, loss of muscle mass. It competes with testosterone for helping testosterone be effective. And although, of course, you'll release lots of both hormones when you train very hard, you really want the cortisol to drop away quite quickly after the workout. It all ties back into how much real or perceived stress that you're under in your life, in your work, in training, from your diet. how much cortisol you're producing in response to different types of stress.
1: That overexposure, you say, is actually an epidemic at the moment. And we see it quite a bit where people stressed in the workplace, stressed about their jobs, stressed about how they look in society through social media or even family stress, making lunches for the kids, getting the kids to school, wondering, like we were talking before the show, Am I giving my kids too much tech? Am I giving them too little? Am I being too soft on them? All these things add up and create cortisol. And it's the constant living in this, which is the real threat for humanity.
0: I agree. And I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why there's this massive rise in mindful techniques in urban areas. There's a huge rise in practices like yoga and things like that. All of those things are you know, obviously centered around managing your, your stress resistance better. It takes some practice. You know, stress management is something that you know people have to learn, reinforce, practice. As you said, it comes from lots of different places. You know, the body's stress response can't distinguish between stress from the kids, marital stress, road rage, stress in the workplace, or even stress that you might be placing on yourself by, you know, working out. Inefficiently or for too long.
1: That last one's actually one I suffered from when I reignited my health and fitness about two years ago. On top of a rather stressful job, I started adding in training. And what I found was my visceral fat levels went up. And the person who was basically measuring my fat levels was like, the training has actually added, it's become a new stress rather than a replacement or a help in all this. So you're going to have to change something else in your life, not just add on training.
0: 100% agreed on that. It's also choosing the right style of training that you both enjoy and doesn't induce too much of a physical load on top of everything else. Generally, you can either train moderately, intensively for a medium amount of time or a high intensity for a short amount of time. But if you start combining the high intensity plus a significant time, you know, you can do it once a week in a rugby match, but you try and do it doing that every other day, then you're going to you're gonna start to induce the negative effects of stress. And then that all plays into overreaching and overtraining syndrome.
1: You do eventually get addicted to it and enjoy it more and more. But at the start, it's very, very difficult. And that's what you're talking about, but the brain always wins. You have to trick the brain at the start. And there's little things that you, through your work, I learned, which was reward yourself at the end of it. So, for example, I don't have breakfast before. I try and train first thing in the morning. I do a HIIT session, high intensity interval workout, and that's short and sweet, but you feel rewarded afterwards because it was so intense, but also the fact that it was short means it's achievable, and then you get a dopamine kick. So I started reading all about the chemicals that are released, and I was kind of going to okay, how can I manipulate these and make my body like an animal, sit there and go, here's, here's, a, here's a doggy treat take this and then become addicted to that and then integrate it into my life. And it's been really, really successful.
0: I think that's a brilliant way of doing it. I'd agree with that. In a time-pressured environment and everything we know about high-intensity interval training, it's just the best choice. You just need to make sure that your body's sufficiently robust to handle the intensity before you get into those really cranking up type of sessions. That's
1: a really good point. For somebody who's an office worker and wants to get started, how can they ease into this and then eventually over time up the ante?
0: I would say the first thing to do is just establish the habit. The best thing is always to build volume. If you want to do high-intensity interval sprints, the first thing to do is make sure you can sort of jog for half an hour. You're getting the tissue used to impact You know, and if you're really from a a poor level of fitness, you'd start by just getting used to walking, possibly on a little bit of an incline to increase the intensity slightly. But build the rhythm and the habit so that, you know, you're in the gym three times a week at a set time, having had, you know, a cup of coffee, some water, whatever you normally do as part of your normal morning routine. After probably as little as a week to 10 days, you'll be able to start increasing the load. And I would say the first thing to do would be to look for what might be called aerobic interval training. So just go faster for a minute, slower for a minute, before you start thinking about the, the super high sprints, which go beyond the upper part of your aerobic capacity. And then you would experiment with the work to rest ratio. So you might start with a one work to three rest. So if you if you're running a bit faster for 30 seconds, you'd walk a bit slower for 90, and then you can go one to two. So work for 30, rest for 60, and then actually when you get sufficiently uh, used to it, you can just go for a one-to-one. On a one-to-one, the intensity of your intervals will drop off after the third one. You certainly won't be able to maintain the intensity that you did on the first couple across, say, 10 or even 20 intervals. But if you're doing a 30-second on, 30 off with a six-minute warm-up, you can be in and out of the gym in 16 minutes having done 10 intervals. And, you know, you will get a training effect from that, and you will get a favorable effect on your body composition from just doing that 15-minute session three times a week. You know, and then if you've got more time, you can extend that workout, maybe do a little bit longer Maybe go up to 20 minutes. But if you're working high-intensity intervals properly, I'd say it's pretty much impossible to do more than 20, 25 minutes. You can do aerobic intervals for 45 minutes or even an hour, but the intensity will be lower. It's still worth doing. But for that real high-intensity stuff, yeah, you'll be be done and dusted quite quickly because the body just can't maintain that energy output any longer than that.
1: The hard bit is going to the gym. I don't understand when they go that they don't work hard. And as you say, some movement is better than none. But if there was one piece of advice I'd give to some people, some people I see there and, and they're there before I arrive, they're still there when I leave. They're still there after I've had a shower and I'm leaving the gym and they're working at this very, very low intensity. I'm kind of going, I feel like just going, just change this a little bit. But then again, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But to bring it back to the brain and stress, etc., Matt, because this is where the brain and training are so interlinked is the workplace and you talk about amygdala hijacks in the workplace and it'd be great to firstly get a understanding of what's going on there and then how the training can help ease that and change that over time
0: the amygdala is part of the limbic system so it's the primitive brain reptilian brain whatever whatever you want to call it is there for survival so what you don't want is a snake dropping out of the tree and then you're conscious, logical thinking brain is going, oh, what should I do about this? It's a snake. What you actually want is the animal brain to kick in and grab that snake by the neck and snap the snake in half kind of thing. So that's the amygdala hijack. That's what it's there for. It bypasses the conscious thought pattern and it just kicks in the stress response. You know, it's brilliant for that reason. However, if you've just been, you know, downgraded on your business class flights, that's the same system that gets you in a shouting match with the staff, and then you, you know, you end up being arrested in the airport, kind of thing, or someone cuts you up on a commute in the car, and you chase them down the back streets, and you know, end up getting in an altercation, and then, and then get arrested. So it's the same system that can get you in that kind of trouble. What's being shown is the more sort of higher function, higher consciousness thinking you can do, and the more brain type of building exercises around. The sort of hypothalamus and hippocampus, two areas of the brain which respond to positive type behaviors, you know, language, learning, new skills, goal setting, all that sort of stuff. When those systems have fairly developed and also mindful techniques, yoga, you're better able at overriding the fear response. The same amygdala hijack can happen if you're worried about a, a presentation or a meeting that's coming up you know, work or just normal stuff day-to-day that can induce an overly aggressive stress response which isn't suitable or reasonable to the situation that you're presented with.
1: That's actually one of the main reasons I was asking you on the innovation show is that because if you're in this state of mind, the amygdala hijacked state, you don't have your best self available to yourself. So you can't think outside the box. You can't connect ideas or have a meaningful Meeting with people to come up with solutions for challenges within your business because you're stuck in this fight, flight, or freeze response.
0: It negates logical or creative thinking, but it's very good for fighting or running away,
1: (laughs) (laughs) which is a response that you can choose as well when it comes to innovation. But uh, last one, Matt, is stress and inflammation because many people have aches and pains and they tend to go for the painkiller over the vitamin and. I thought that it'd be great to shine a light on what's causing this as well because often people look to the symptom and they go, oh, I have elbow pain. I'll get some anti-inflammatory cream for my elbow and they don't look at the source of that and it can be a lot of times stress and going back to cortisol as well. This is one of the major reasons for this kind of pain, back pain, neck pain, whatever it may be in the workplace is cortisol.
0: So the first thing to say about that is that the immediate effect of cortisol would be to lower inflammation, and that's why you get sometimes get given like hydrocortisone injections in injury sites, or even for inflammatory bowel disease and things like that. So it does help in the acute phase of an injury. But the problem lies with the chronic overexposure, so the long-term exposure to cortisol, because if you have too much for too long, you have an anti-inflammatory effect, but you have no ability to rebuild the tissue. So you've got no inflammation, but then you've got no anabolic response, so that the injury won't improve. That would be the case if someone was taking hydrocortisone tablets for an inflammatory bowel disease. You know, sometimes what can happen is the bowel then just becomes dysfunctional and just disintegrates. There's no ability for it to build back up. But of course, you have to take them in the initial instance, because that can be a deadly situation if you don't get rid of the inflammation. That chronic uh, overexposure to stress would basically inhibiting the healing response. There's lots of anecdotal sort of feedback with people that are stressed, they can't progress as well in the gym. The strength gains might not be as quick or as good. If they're stretching to increase the flexibility, then that chronic exposure to stress won't be helping the flexibility gains. And sometimes, although there may be other reasons for this, this can be why you see on holiday that suddenly your nails are growing faster and things like that. But that can also be because you're getting lots of vitamin D and, and things like that. It's more of a moderation of the cortisol response to allow inflammation to carry out its beneficial healing effects. In terms of inflammation and stress, inflammation is another stressor on the body. So If you can lower inflammation by eating loads of omega-3 fats, loads of phytochemicals, loads of color-rich pigment-based foods, then you bring down the inflammation, you lower the stress, then you can carry out a normal process of rebuilding. So that's that whole link behind why an anti-inflammatory diet might actually help the stress response and help the healing response.
1: Final thing is, if you're stuck in a lift with somebody and they ask you one piece of advice to launch into this or restart after a Christmas lull, what piece of advice would that be?
0: Choose habits which are sustainable. Go about the business of making behavior change in a sustainable manner.
1: And this is where you talk about vision and end goals, just not about the training. It's about where do you want to get to.
0: It's about where you want to get to, and it's about enjoying the process. If you just have endpoint outcome-based goals, then you may achieve them, you may not. You may get close to them, and then you may get the goal fade. If you introduce habits and behaviors which are process-driven as a result of that, value-driven, so you basically get those little rewards that you were talking about, that daily feeling of a dopamine response, and you tick the box, you've done the high-intensity morning training, and you get all the nice testosterone release and stuff you enjoy the process and then after a couple of months suddenly suddenly you look in the mirror and actually you're leaner stronger fitter and you haven't just been worried about getting to that leaner stronger fitter thing all the time you've actually just been enjoying your life every day and you know getting this little by little
1: and that's the goal of it all matt it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as always where can people find out more and in particular i'm going to call out because i find this really helpful Your four-week fat loss program includes diet and training, et cetera. You might just mention that as well.
0: The best place, honestly, is the aminoman.com website because you can email me direct from there. So I'll I'll pick up anything that's sent through the website. I can send people a version of that four-week fat loss for free, actually. The website that we used to run that through and sell that program through, that's not working as well as it used to. So I'm tending to offer the dietary plan as a little new year booster. And then, you know, hopefully if, if people need the extra support, then the way that I get helped is if they're buying some fish oils from me in return, you know, some aminos or something like that in return for the free system.
1: Matt Lovell, expert in corporate wellness, performance and health nutritionist and body recomposition expert. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks a lot, Hayden. Thanks, mate.